you say your name? Saraya. Okay, you'll have to tell me that again. Saraya is going to follow her Lord in baptism. I just want to say this, if you never have, if you're born again, if you're saved and you know it, but you've never followed the Lord in baptism, you can this morning. I left the house. I forgot to bring me a change of clothes. So this is going to be my baptismal clothes. So you could get your clothes wet too. We have towels. And if you want to follow the Lord while the water's hot, uh, what did that guy say in Brother Old, Where Art Thou? Come on in, the water's fine. And uh, so, Soraya, we're excited about your decision this morning. And we pray that uh, you just continue to follow the Lord Jesus Christ in everything that you do. We're in this, uh, I called it a campaign. And we named it, Who Cares? And we're going to find out if you care or not. And, uh, you know, the old saying, I don't know who made it famous. Maybe Billy Graham, maybe... um, some other great preacher, uh, but nobody cares how much you know until they know how much you care. And uh, love is a choice. And but if you choose to love, then it demands an action. You can't say that you love somebody and not show it. Okay. So this campaign is who cares. Last week it was each one bring one. And uh, I don't see a lot of new faces here this morning, but that's okay. I've heard a lot of people say they tried. Now, I hope you understand this. Jesus told his disciples that he would make fishers of men. The first four men that Jesus called to follow him were fishermen commercial fishermen so he used that analogy that they would understand he said you're going to one day fish for men now I want you to understand Jesus didn't say they had to catch men he just said they needed to fish now some of these guys that love to fish it becomes an obsession and they'll fish all day and not catch anything and we need to become obsessed with winning souls like some people are at fishing for fish. Doesn't mean every time you throw out your lure that you're going to catch a fish. But you just keep casting out your lure or casting out your nets. But I can assure you, if you never cast out your lure or you never throw your nets out of the boat, you are never going to catch a fish. And so look at it, I hope, in that same way. This is, if you're a soul winner, if you share your testimony, if you share the gospel with Christ, of Christ with people today already, I hope this encourages you more. If you're hesitant of that, I hope this will spark you into becoming that person. Uh, if you weren't here last Sunday at the 5 o'clock service, uh, we've been sharing our testimonies because the Bible says in the tribulation they were made overcomers by the blood of the Lamb and their testimony. Now, we're not made overcomers by that in this dispensation, but there is something to that. We have been made overcomers by a free gift that God gave us. But to share our testimony is very important. You don't have to memorize anything. You just share your story. 
And last Sunday, we were witness to a woman who shared her testimony in a beautiful way um, that took her out of her box. It was very uh, difficult for her and very scary for her, but she did it. And so she's checked that off of her box. And now the next time she gives it, it'll be that much easier. And so we just want to encourage you to become a person who cares about the lost. And I think... uh, The main problem is motivation. We're just not motivated to do that. Today I want to entitle this service, Anointed and Appointed. We are appointed to share the gospel. We are appointed to win souls. And we are anointed to do so. And I don't believe Jesus Christ ever appointed anyone to nothing or anointing them for no reason. So, I think the biggest problem in soul winning is the lack of motivation. So today, I'm going to try to motivate you. I remember a story about a young man. He was walking through a path in the woods, and all of a sudden he heard this terrible noise, and he turned around and looked, And there was this giant grizzly bear. Now, uh, I can't think of very many things more scary than being in the woods on a path and a grizzly bear uh, on your heels. This man began to run like I would. How many of you have heard from the uh, professional forest preserve people, if you see a bear, just lay down and play dead? Uh, I am not doing that. I don't care how professional they say they are. To me, that's a good way to become dead. But this young man, he didn't think that was good advice either, so he took off running. And, of course, the grizzly bear took off running. This young man was afraid for his life. He's running for his life. He can feel the breath of this grizzly on the nap of his neck, and there's nothing he can do. All of a sudden, up ahead on the path, he sees a tree with a limb across the path. But the problem, the limb was at least 15 feet high. And as the young man's running, he knows no human being has ever jumped 15 feet straight off the ground. But he didn't have any other choice. And so he ran with all his might, and with a prayer, he jumped with all his might and he missed it but he caught the limb on his way back down amen (laughs) and uh, he was motivated and so motivation will cause you to do things that you can't believe that you could ever do we do have a baptismal service so I'm going to make this quick and also I am motivated to make it quicker I sat there During the offering, I said, Peggy, where are you going to take me to lunch? She said, I don't know. How about dinks? I said, this is going to be a short little sermon. I can guarantee you that. So I'm motivated, and I hope you're motivated as well. I found a piece of scripture. I just picked it apart. I I want to give it to you. What motivated the greatest soul winner that possibly we know of the Apostle Paul. 
And the Apostle Paul is asked this question from a church in Corinth. In the second letter to Corinth, he's asked, What makes you so motivated? What causes you to do the things you do? He gave them an answer. I want to try to break it down and give it for us today. Number one, it's the soul winner's compulsion. Are you compelled to win souls? Paul was. It's the soul winner's compulsion. Let's see what it was. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9. Look at Paul's compulsion. Wherefore, we labor. Why do we do it? Why do we work so hard? Why do we care? That whether present or absent, we may be accepted of him. The, the premier thing that Paul wanted them to get was the thing that compelled him. His compulsion was that he might be pleasing to Jesus Christ. This acceptance is not salvation. Paul did not preach the gospel. Paul did not lead sinners to Jesus to earn his salvation. This is to be pleasing to Jesus. And he says, above everything else I'm going to tell you here, it's that I want to be pleasing to him. Now, one of the things that would motivate you is if you can understand... The rest of the whole world can jump in the lake. If you'll focus on pleasing Jesus Christ, the rest of the world will take a back seat. And it doesn't matter if the whole rest of the world does not care about you or see you as pleasing. If Jesus Christ sees you as pleasing Him, And on the flip side of that coin, you've wasted your life if you please every other person in the world and not Him. One of the things I think the main thing, I think the Holy Spirit knows what He's doing when He puts these Scriptures together, is that people aren't motivated to please Christ. Now last week, I tried to show you this video and we got demons in the sound booth again. Once again, not those two beautiful people back there. But in the electronics. I don't want you to miss it. It got right to the good part, and then it stopped. So I want to take just a few minutes to show you the video this morning. So, Miss Fox, if you can show it. This is a vision from William Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army. Cursing and struggling and drowning. And out of this dark, angry ocean, I saw a mighty rock that rose up with its summit towering high above the stormy seas. And all round the base of the rock, I saw a vast platform. And on this platform, I saw with delight a number of the poor wretches continually climbing out of the angry ocean. 
and I saw that some of those who were already safe on the platform were fervently helping the poor creatures still in the angry waters to reach safety. But something puzzled me. Although they had all been rescued at one time or another from the ocean, nearly everyone seemed to have forgotten all about it. Anyway, the memory of its darkness and danger no longer troubled them. And what was equally strange and perplexing to me was that most of these people did not seem to have any care, that is, any agonizing care, about the poor perishing ones who were struggling and drowning right before their eyes. But then I saw something wonderful. I saw a great being from above come straight from his palace, right through the dark clouds, and he leapt right into the raging sea among the drowning people. And there I saw him toiling to rescue them until the sweat of his great anguish ran down in blood. And he was continually crying to those already rescued, to those whom he had helped with his own bleeding hands, to come and help him in the painful and laborious task of saving the lost. But the strangest thing of all was that those on the platform to whom he called were so taken up with their trades and professions and money-saving and pleasures and families and community and gatherings and religions and arguments about it that they did not respond to the cry that came to them from this wonderful being who had himself by his spirit gone down into the sea. And so the multitude went on struggling and shrieking and drowning in the darkness. And then I saw something that seemed stranger than anything that had happened before in this very strange vision. Those whom this wonderful being cried out to to come and help him in his difficult task were always praying and crying to him to come to them. Some wanted him to come and stay with them and spend his time and strength in making them happier. Others wanted him to come and take away various doubts and misgivings they had concerning the truth of some letters which he had written them. Others wanted him to come and make them feel more secure on the rock, so secure that they would be totally sure they would never slip off again. They used to meet and get as close to the rock as they could, and looking towards the mainland where they thought the great being was, they would cry out, Come to us, come and help us. But all this time, he was down among the poor drowning creatures, crying to them in a hoarse voice, Come to me, come and help me. And then I understood it all. It was plain enough. That sea was the ocean of life, the sea of real, actual human existence. Those multitudes of people struggling in the stormy sea were the billions of sinners from every race, language, and nation. That great sheltering rock was Calvary, the place of the cross. And the people on it were those who had been rescued from sin and hell and who professed to be followers of Jesus Christ. That mighty being who called to them from the tempest was the Son of God, the same yesterday, today, and forever who is still struggling to save the dying multitudes about us from this terrible doom of damnation, and whose voice can be heard above the music and machinery and noise of life, calling on the rescued to come and help him save the world. My friends in Christ, you are rescued from the waters. 
You are on the rock. Jesus is in the dark sea, calling on you to come and help him. Will you go? Okay. I hope that speaks volumes about what I'm trying to say. The reason why the crowds of people that had been rescued had turned their attention to themselves was lack of motivation. Sometimes we seem to forget where we came from. And we're not motivated to share what we hold to be our greatest truth because we just don't care. I pray that in the weeks to come, you become a person that cares about other people's soul. We should have a knowledge about heaven and a knowledge about hell. And Jesus spoke five times more about hell than he did heaven. And we're going to see it in this sermon. When I watched that little video, and then I went out and I read the account of William Booth's vision, it, it, uh, it struck home with me. I, I thought it was masterfully done. That's what the church is. We're saved. We're clear. We spend most of our time talking about ourselves. I can't wait to get to heaven. Isn't God good to me? With no thought or care for the people we supposed to love that we know are going to hell. I was not at this funeral, but a few weeks ago I heard of a funeral where inside of the funeral at the service they said, we know he was not saved. We know he did not love the Lord. But he was a good guy. No one weeped. No one shouted with anguish. I think the biggest problem is lack of motivation. But it doesn't have to be our problem. So number one, we looked at the soul winner's compulsion. What is the number one thing that should compel you to win the loss? Your love for Jesus Christ. Don't do it so that you look like somebody. Don't do it so that someone else will look to you as their Savior. You do it out of a pure love for Jesus Christ. Number two... The soul winner's compensation. You may not get a thing here. If you came to hear Jesse Duplantis talk about his airplanes and stuff, you're in the wrong place. But the soul winner's compensation will be at the 
judgment seat of Jesus Christ where the bride of Jesus Christ stands before their groom Jesus Christ God and the things that they did in their bodies will be judged their sin was judged on the cross your sin will not be brought up but what you did for the kingdom of God good or bad the Bible talks about gold and silver that's already went through the fire when it goes through the fire of the judgment of God it will just be made better but the Bible talks about wood, hay, and stubble. That's the things that you've done in your life. That's the things that I've done in my life that did not matter for the kingdom of God. They will all be burned up. So your salvation is not at question at this judgment. This is not the great white throne judgment. It's the Greek word bema seat judgment. But don't think that it's not a judgment. Some preachers say it's just like an award ceremony and everybody gets a participation trophy. No, God don't play like that. What you did and did not do will be judged. And the Bible says you can suffer loss. So it's the soul winner's compensation. Look at 2 Corinthians 5.10, the next verse in this explanation of Paul. He says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. It's not the great white throne judgment. It's the judgment seat of Christ. It's the judgment seat for the believers. What is the compensation? Look at 1 Corinthians 9, 24. 1 Corinthians 9, 24. Know ye not that they which run in a race run all, but one receiveth the prize. Don't you just hate this woke society today where every little kid gets a trophy? What's the motivation God don't play that way. The winner gets the prize. Do you know who second place is? It's the first loser. That's the motivation. And Paul uses these analogies of athletic events over and over and over and over. And the Bema seat was a trophy stand in the middle of the Olympic Games and the winner got a crown it was a crown of leaves it was a crown of ivy and it lasted for a while and then it was dead and corrupted but for a while you got the crown Paul says we don't serve God for a crown that dies and rusts and decays watch the compensation know you not that they which run in a race run all they run as hard as they can but one receiveth the prize so run that you may obtain 
And every man that striveth for the mastery is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a corruptible crown. In the Roman Greek world, they ran for a crown that was a dead bunch of leaves. But we run for an incorruptible crown. I therefore so run, not as uncertainly, so fight I, not as one that beateth the air. Let me tell you something. Are you running the race? Or you just think you're going to get a participation trophy? You will not. God don't play like that. I coached little kids for years. I used to ask them, especially on a wrestling mat when it was over. Wrestling's the toughest sport in the world. I don't care what you say. I've played a lot of sports. Football, give me a break. You go for about three seconds, then you get a break. You get to swander back to the group of your buddies where you hug on each other and help each other, and you catch your breath. And you got 11 people on one side, so that means 10 other people can take your blame. But not on a wrestling mat. It's you against another human being trying to hurt you. Your same age, your same size. It's the toughest thing. Collegially, they wrestle nine minutes. You ought to try it. But it's also so emotionally charged because if you win there's not 10 other people like a football team to take part of your credit you get it all but if you lose you not only lost and it's just you you can't blame anyone but you but you got lost because another person overpowered you Yesterday, I went to a basketball game. Now, you know there was somebody on that court that I cared for more than my own life. I've made a point. I'm going to go watch Reagan cheer for a basketball game this Thursday. I'm already getting sick in my stomach. I don't like watching people dribble in their shorts. I just don't. But my granddaughter was playing, and I went. Paul says, in your Christian walk, you should run with everything you have. He said, I'm fighting a fight, and it ain't like I'm boxing the air. I'm in a fight. Are you in a fight? Are you in a fight? Are you flying under the radar? Are you fighting the forces of darkness? Are you going along to get along? You're not going to leave here thinking that you can get to heaven and get a trophy for nothing. God has not appointed you to nothing. God has not anointed you to do nothing. Now you can get to heaven and I'll tell you straight up you can get to heaven and not do a thing because your salvation was paid for by Jesus Christ who did it all. 
But if you loved him more than yourself, it would compel you to please him. And if you will do that with your life, he guarantees you compensation, which is a crown. Now I want you to know that at the Bema seat, people are given crowns. There are five different crowns. But at the end of that ceremony, we all take our crowns and throw them at his feet. You're not going to walk around in heaven bragging about your crowns to people that don't have any. But you may stand there in uh, embarrassment that you don't have anything to offer the king. So, I had a wreck one time, and I've talked about it a lot. It changed my life. I knew I was dead. I knew when I opened my eyes, I would see Jesus Christ, because I knew that verse, to be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord. And I was on a gravel road to go to a meeting for the church. I knew I was saved. I knew... I was in heaven and I was not afraid to die but I was ashamed to die. I've tried to explain it ever since. I cannot explain to you the feeling that I felt. The best way I can explain it is that I was not afraid one little bit to die. Matter of fact, I was looking forward to seeing him. But in that moment when it came real, I was not afraid to die, but I was totally ashamed to die. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 11. For other foundations can no man lay than that is laid which is Jesus Christ. Now if any man build upon this foundation gold, silver, and precious stones or you might build wood, hay, and stubble every man's work shall be made manifest for the day shall declare it because it shall be revealed by fire and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. Notice what he said, what kind it is, not the amount. He's not looking for quantities, looking for Quality. It's going to be judged by the sort, what kind it is. If any man's work abide which he hath built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. We're talking about the compensation. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss. But he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. Some old preachers used to call them singed saints. Paul's very clear. We're not talking about your salvation. You, you're going to get to go to heaven, but you may get there all singed and burnt as though by fire. Anything you've done for the kingdom of God with a pure motive will just be made better. It's precious stones and gold and silver but anything even that you did for the kingdom with the wrong motive will burn up. There is no reward for that. Most Christians I meet live a life of wood, hay, and stubble. 
That does not have to be you. Third thing I find, the soul winner's conviction. I think the main problem is motivation, but probably second would be a conviction. Look at 2 Corinthians. We'll pick it up, chapter 5, where we left off in verse 11. Paul says another reason why he labors so hard is knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord. The terror of the Lord Knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are made manifest unto God, and I trust also are made manifest in your consciences. The terror of the Lord. What is the terror of the Lord? The terror of the Lord is hell. And the reason why some people do not share the gospel with other people they know are lost is they have no conviction of hell. I told you about that funeral. They just flippantly said, yeah, we think he's in hell, but he was a really nice guy. Are you going to try to tell me that this man lived <coughs> mid-30s, I think, and he never encountered another Christian person that had the convictions to share with him the gospel of Christ? But mainly because we don't really believe in hell. Preachers quit preaching about it. You can't build a church preaching about hell. You got to preach about health and wealth. And what can we do for you? The terror of the Lord is hell. Your testimony could cause another person to believe on Christ. Your sharing of the good news could lead a person to ask Jesus to save them from an eternal hell. Your lips could be used of God, appointed and anointed, to share the story. You know, I always say this when uh, Jonah finally got to Nineveh. God had been working on Nineveh for months and months and months. And the pagan uh, Babylonian worshiping, devil worshiping people of Nineveh were asking their God, Dagon, the fish god, to send them a prophet. You do not know how God is working in the lives and on the heart of another person. They can hide it real well. And you may not ever know. And God may have been working in their life to get them to that point. And God, through His sovereignty, brings them into your life hoping and praying that you'll take the opportunity to share with them the good news. But we don't believe in hell. If we really believed in hell, if we were really convicted, it would change the way we live. It would change the way we think. It would change the way we act. And one of the things at the top of our list would be sharing with other people 
sharing with the lost the gospel of Jesus Christ. So number one, the soul winner's compulsion. Number two, the soul winner's compensation. Number three, the soul winner's conviction. And number four, the soul winner's compassion. Look, we'll pick it up right where Paul left off, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 13. For whether we be beside ourselves, that word's uh, schizo. He said, whether we be out of our minds, schizophrenic, it is to God. He said, that's up to God. Or whether we be sober, it is for your cause. For the love of Christ constraineth us because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead. We're talking about the compassion. And that he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. He said, if you would understand what the price was paid for you, you would have compassion on the lost. We would want everyone to feel the compassion of Jesus Christ. But we don't really have compassion for them. You say, well, I can't talk to strangers. If you were driving down the road and their house was on fire, you could talk to them. Why? You would be motivated. Maybe there's somebody in there. And you would have compassion. I'm not just going to drive by and let them burn to death if there's somebody in that house. One night, several years ago, it was about 3 o'clock in the morning, and uh, my head on my bed in my bedroom was right by the front door. And uh, 3 o'clock in the morning, I hear, Wake up! Wake up! I was like, well, what? this is a goofy dream. And then I figured out, this ain't no dream. I was like, who is this? And I opened the door, and right there is the front door. And this woman's out there on my porch frantically screaming, Your house is on fire! And my house wasn't, but my shop was. But to her, it looked like my whole house was on fire. I turned around, I looked through the kitchen window, and it was just orange. I thought my whole house was on fire. I'd never met her before, didn't know her name. I know her name now. She saved my life, along with my family's. By the time I got out there, all the siding on the back of my house had melted off. Well, she didn't drive by and say, well, I don't know those people. You know, and they may already be awake, and they may have already gotten out, so who am I? I don't want to disturb them. When you go past someone that has an eternity in hell awaiting them, you have no compassion for those people. I know this lady, she's really shy, but she wasn't shy that morning, thank God. Fifth thing, the soul winner's confidence. Listen, if you'll become a soul winner motivated to share the lost, 
the gospel of Jesus Christ, you can have confidence that if they do receive salvation, they will receive the same salvation that you received. They will be ushered into the family of God. They will have an eternal home. You can have confidence that God will work in their lives. He is the workman. They are the workmanship of God. Last week, Stacy said, hey, there's a little girl wants to get baptized. I said, is this little girl saved? He said, yeah, she got saved here in the youth group, you know, a while back. I didn't know her name. I didn't know anything. I hadn't been contacting her. I hadn't tried to tell her she needed baptized. Something in her life God used to spark that within her. She wanted to become baptized. Listen, if you'll share the gospel, you can have confidence that God will do what He says. Look at 2 Corinthians 5, verse 16. <clears throat> Wherefore, henceforth know we no man after the flesh. Yea, though we have known Christ after the flesh, yet now, henceforth, we uh, know we him no more. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And you can have confidence that just like that happened with you, it will happen with anyone that you share the gospel with that receives forgiveness. We are confident. Last. Sixth thing I find in this response from Paul is the soul winner's commission. Look at verse 18. Pick it up right where we left off. Verse 18. And all things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ, and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation. You are a minister of Jesus Christ. You should be actively ministering the reconciliation. To wit, that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Now, then we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you by us, we pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. For he hath made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. That's the great commission. What would it take to change you? What would it take to motivate you to care for the lost? Let me ask you a question. <clears throat> I think the main problem is motivation. So, hypothetically, what if you received $1,000 cash every time you shared the gospel with a lost person? Would that motivate you? What if you received 
a million dollars cash every time you shared the gospel with a lost person, would that motivate you? Would you somehow find compassion for the lost? Our problem is motivation. If we could catch a glimpse of what heaven is, if we could but just see a glimpse of what eternity with Jesus Christ will be, and in turn, if we could just smell a whiff or feel the heat or just see inside of hell for a half a second, it would motivate us it would drive us to compassion for the lost. I do not want you to live your life in a part of Matoka Baptist Church and die. Reach the Savior and everything in your life is burned up wood, hay, and stubble. I want you to hear, get in here, my good and faithful servant. Stand to your feet. We want to just take a minute as Diana comes, Dawn comes. They're going to play you some songs. and uh, I keep wanting to call her Sierra, but that's not her name. Soraya, if you'll leave, Peggy will take you back there. And you can start getting ready. It won't take me long. All I got to do is take my shoes off. And we're, uh, we're excited uh, for Soraya. I just want to, as they're going, I just want to give you a time of prayer. And uh, along with me, I'm in this with you. I, um, I need to find a true motivation the lost souls I can remember a time when I was first saved I didn't care who you were and I didn't care where I was at I was going to tell you about Jesus and I shared my faith multiple times every day because why I'm the same person today but I was motivated. And the longer I stay in ministry, the less I love people. But the more I love Him. When I first was saved, I was so naive. I, I, you know, I just thought everybody was the greatest people in the world. So I didn't look at them in any judgmental way. And I knew if they were lost, they needed Jesus. And I felt compassion, and I felt compelled, and I was convicted. And I would just share the good news with them, not withholding it from anyone. But as you live your life, and, you know, life happens to you, and, and you have things happen to you, you get a little jaded. I'll just be honest with you. I shouldn't tell you this. 
but there's some people I haven't warned to go to heaven heaven is going to be this vast expanse and it needs to be it needs to be vast and expanse so I don't ever run into them I don't doubt one bit they're not saved But I also know my Lord. And it would be just like Him to put my mansion right next door to theirs. Or maybe He might say this. Hey, hey. Uh, you don't get a mansion. You get a room. You get a mother-in-law's quarters in their backyard. Maybe you're like that. Maybe you see people. They don't look like your people. Maybe you don't want to share the gospel with them because maybe you don't think there's any hope. Maybe you don't care. Maybe you wish they don't go to heaven. I don't know. But today you can change all that. We need a motivation. We need a compassion for the lost. Let me ask you something. When's the last time you shed one tear for a lost person? I'm not talking about bawling. I'm not talking about wetting your sheets. I'm not talking about soaking a, a Kleenex. One tear. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. That you did come. You were born of a woman. You did live. You lived a sinless life. And then you laid your life down. And you took it back up on the third day. And because of that we know that we have life. God help us. Motivate us to share our faith. You have appointed us to the ministry of reconciliation and you have anointed us to do so help us to do it forgive us where we failed you in Jesus name we pray amen if you'll take your seat just a second please